0: I want you to open to Matthew chapter 5. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Our title for the next several months of teaching here is Life on God's Terms. Dash the Sermon on the Mount. Life on God's Terms. As far as I know and have been able to ascertain through these many years, I've been a Christian, the true Christian life is living. On God's terms. I guess you would agree with that. That we don't have to try to figure out how we should live, that God has already shown us how to live, and all we have to do is follow or obey. In the New Testament, especially and probably in the whole Bible, you won't find a section of teachings any more profound than the ones you'll find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read the first two verses of Matthew 5 and the last two verses of Matthew 7. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then we have 111 verses, almost 109 after these two, of the sayings of Jesus. Various subjects, it's not a continuous, one theme sermon. It's a sermon which encompasses the kind of Christianity, the kind of people Christians ought to be. Now, it's been my opinion through the years that the Sermon on the Mount is considered to be very lofty and very wonderful, but it's largely ignored as a must-do. When Jesus ends this sermon by saying in verse 28... And it came to pass when Jesus had entered ended these things that people were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He wasn't just a typical teacher doing a typical thing as a required thing in a place or a church. When he opened his mouth and spoke, those words were God sent. Remember in Isaiah 55, his word will not return void. That means he sends his word with something. When it's his word prompted by him, it comes with influence and impact. And the people who heard him teach recognized that what he was saying, though the words were not hard to understand at all, it's quite a simple section of scripture, but it was very profound, and they were astonished. Maybe they were astonished that anybody could ask human beings to live like this because a lot of people that I have through the years talked to or read after or read excerpts in articles or magazines or something or a book or a conversation many people said well they didn't believe anybody could live the Sermon on the Mount that the Sermon on the Mount was therefore relegated to the millennium you know a different time a time when the Garden of Eden characteristics are on this earth But if that was true, then Matthew 7, like verse 24, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to us. Because in Matthew 7, verse 24, it says, he that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto. Well, if this is not for today, if this Sermon on the Mount teaching doesn't apply to us here tonight, then we're wasting our time teaching on it because it won't work. It's just too hard. We're so frail spiritually that we can't grasp it, that we really can't do this. No doubt we've tried some parts of it. There's just too much in here that's too high and too lofty. And yet, if we can't do this, if this really is over our heads and it's not possible for us to do it, then there is a sense in which we're being deceived. We're asked to do something that we can't do. But in truth, we really can't do anything without God's help. Nothing. Nothing that you can be credited for or praised for by God can be done without his help. Otherwise, you could do things without him and merit salvation or merit blessings and grace and a lot of things, but it doesn't work like that. The Sermon on the Mount, as they have said, many great ones have said, it's the heart of the gospel. It's the key to the whole Bible. You live this way and you'll make it. If you don't live this way, folks say, well, it's because we can't do that, it's too hard. But what he sets down here is not a law, but these are principles. And they're very important to understand this, that the Sermon on the Mount are principles given by God to man as how God wants his people to live and to develop their character. This is the way Christians should live. We turn the other cheek, we go the extra mile, we don't sue. We're just not ordinary world type people. God saved us like that, but he brought us out of that unto himself to completely change us and transform us and make us literally a spectacle to the world. And with ordinary people like us in 1 Corinthians 1, he said he's going to confound the whole world. They're going to realize that just people that the world didn't think much of are the people that are going to make it in the kingdom, and the people who thought they deserved the kingdom aren't going to make it. I think the average Christian feels like they do deserve whatever God has, they deserve it. I think the average Christian probably feels like they deserve whatever God has because in their own light, they see themselves as going to church, I give, uh, I help, I go, I'm a part of, I contribute my time and energy in some way, therefore, and they feel like they really do deserve it, that if God was going to bless anybody, he would surely bless them. It would be very hard to teach on being blessed then because the only people that deserve to be blessed are those that have been in it for a long time and have done a lot. And those of us that are new are just sort of left out. A brother and I many years ago about parted company over that. He didn't think it was right to teach people that God would bless them because they believed. Because he said, my family member, aunt and uncle, had served in the church of God for so many years and they were poor and destitute and they never had anything and they weren't well and didn't get anything from God and he said if God was going to give anybody anything he would have done it for them because the mindset of church members is that we deserve we are entitled to whatever God has I challenge you to think about that that we're entitled to it it's ours belongs to us that we deserve it And yet, you'll find in the Sermon on the Mount, God has something to say about all of that. Now, last time, we just looked at the outline of chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, tonight, in verse 3, we're going into the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes will end in verse 11. Some people put verse 10 and 11 as one Beatitude, and if they are, let me show you something. In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, And here's why, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends it by saying the same thing in verse 11, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said in verse 10, well, blessed, you're persecuted for righteousness sake. He said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of heaven and being in it And being a part of it. Now the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, a subject that many books have been written about by some very heady people. It's not a simple thing to understand it because we know, for example, there is a kingdom that is coming. Jesus in chapter 6 teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come. And yet it is implied in the scripture that Jesus as the king in his kingdom Has come. He said, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. And so we try to put that in light of, well, if the kingdom of God has already come, and he says, Pray that thy kingdom come, what would that mean? Because he said that in Matthew 7, not everybody that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. There's a kingdom that is coming, there's a kingdom that is now being prepared for by those who want to live the way he wants them to live. Do you understand that? God said, this is the way I want you to live because this is the way it will be in my kingdom. Now, the choice is yours. There's a lot of people who read it, who've researched it or studied it. A lot of people have heard about the Sermon on the Mount, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They're familiar with it. But the point of it is, if these teachings are really in preparation for his coming kingdom, then there's a lot of people who aren't being prepared for it. Now, could that mean that many will be called, but few will be chosen? Because it's not that unwary, indifferent church member who feels like he's got it all and doesn't need That's not what God is doing. God makes nobody like that. The kind of person that God makes, the work that he does, and the Bible still says that God is at work in you in Philippians 2, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Doesn't he do a transforming, changing work in his people? Don't these people stand differently than everybody else? Isn't there wheat and tares in the church? Are they not similar at certain stages of growth where you can't tell the difference? Jesus said, leave them alone until the end. Let them grow together. I'll separate them. I'll send the reapers in the end of the day. Some will be denied the kingdom, and some will be accepted into it. Enter into the joys of your Lord, a kingdom that has been prepared for you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. So in reality, what we're being presented with, beginning with these beatitudes, which has to do with character, we're being told that if you really desire all the things that are promised of God in the future, a future life with the Lord. This is the way a man should live. This is the way walk ye in it. And there are those who will and there are those who won't. Now, let me make this clear. We don't live this way in order to be saved. You're not doing this to get saved. It is because you are saved in honor and love for God you do this. Remember Jesus said this in John 14? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. And if he loves me, he will be loved by my father and we will love him. Or in verse 23 said, we will disclose or reveal ourselves to him. All of it is in preparation for the coming of our king who will set up his eternal kingdom when he comes. I really do want to be a part of that. And God forbid that, like so many do today, God forbid that we take all of this for granted. Now these Beatitudes, the beginning of this profound teaching begins with character, issues about character, and begins by saying, blessed be. And the word blessed means to be approved of or to find approval. It also very simply means to be happy. But happy, it just comes short of so many people that are happy but that aren't blessed. But a man who is blessed of God is happy. He's not happy because of what happens. He has joy because joy doesn't matter what happens. But he has an enthusiastic, wonderfully contented manner of life. There's peace and joy no matter what's going on. The world's falling apart. Everything is like Jesus asleep in the ship. You get pictures of this all through the Bible. And the waves are roaring and the boat's filling up and he's asleep. He's the king teaching us how to live, to follow in his steps. And when we don't, he turns to us and he says, Oh, you have little faith. Remember that? Four times he said that. So our king has given us some pretty profound teachings, but we'll have to have our insight, our character change because this blessing that he's talking about, the way we're supposed to be blessed, is conditional. For example, verse 3, you're not poor in spirit because you went forward or you were born again. You certainly can be. And you got an opportunity to be, and everything that it takes for you to be like that is given to you. You got the whole package. But just because we're born again doesn't mean that everything just suddenly comes to pass. There are thousands of promises in the Bible. You don't get those promises just because you got saved. There are conditions that God puts on those promises in order for you to receive them. You believe that? I'm sure you do. Didn't he say in Deuteronomy, if you give heed to his word and walk in his ways and incline your ear to his saying, then all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. What if you don't give heed and you don't pay attention and you don't walk that way? That's just church stuff, but you don't live it. Well, then those blessings don't come. It's real frustrating because you read about blessings, but you don't get any of them. Well, we read in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And he tells you all the things that he does, but for all of those things he does, there is something he wants you to do. You know, you had to give up something, walk away from something, you put your hand to a place, something that he requires of us. They're conditional promises. Let's get verse 3, first of all. Blessed are the poor in spirit you will agree with me about this that if we are going to enter into the kingdom we must have this trait don't be afraid to agree but don't agree with me because I said it I don't want anybody to agree because I said it you search the scriptures yourself and see what it says but he says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so we really need to get this right Being poor in spirit, because I don't know that everybody understands it or does have it right, but let's start with what it does not mean, and we'll get to what it does mean. Being poor in spirit does not mean that we are destitute and broke. We are financially strapped. It doesn't mean that. It does not mean that if, as a Catholic, I take a vow of poverty, I will be poor in spirit. Because poor in spirit is a spiritual term. It's not talking about poverty in the sense of you being broke. In the sense of literal poverty. Think of this from 2 Corinthians 9 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, was Jesus rich? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Oh, I see. He was rich because he shall... Open the windows of heaven and pour out meagerness upon you. And all the windows in heaven contain blessing. He said, "He'll open the doors of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you." What he say in Philippians chapter four: My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory, a place of abundance. All of our needs are not material. Some of these needs, most of our needs, are otherwise. But it said in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Poverty in this sense was because he bore the curse of the law. He not only didn't have a place to lay his head, but when he died, he didn't even have a garment. He had nothing. But he bore the curse of the law. So you could. You could have something. You don't have to be poor and destitute. Because being poor in spirit has nothing to do with a avowed poverty or being broke and not having any money. One emperor took everything that Christians had wherever he was. He just took all their goods so they could go to heaven. He was helping God. He was going to take all their material things or clothes, food, or oxen, whatever they had, and then with nothing they would be poor, then they could go to heaven. God speaks often of the poor in the Bible about you considering the poor. So Poverty and being poor is a very real subject, and your consideration of the poor is important, too. A whole lot of well-being in your life can be determined by whether you are or not. Read Psalm 41. But he says here a second thing. Poor in spirit does not mean poverty of the Holy Spirit. Poor in spirit does not mean I just have a little bit of the Holy Spirit. i got an arm and, and a foot, but that's all there is. Well, there's no such thing. It's not talking about having a portion of the Holy Spirit. You got it or you don't have it. And a third thing that it is not talking about, it's not a deficiency of courage where you cower and you're just real, you know, poor. It's not that either. But this is something very spiritual and something that's not found a lot in the church. Because you see, poverty of spirit has to do with you being destitute. You seeing your utter destitution in spiritual matters. If you're poor in spirit, let me read what one commentator said. I agreed with this. He said, the utter spiritual destitution, the consciousness of which precedes the entrance into the kingdom of God and which cannot be relieved by one's own efforts but can only be The free mercy of God. Personal acknowledgement of your spiritual bankruptcy. That's hard for us to do because today we put a premium on being aggressive and being at the head and being motivated. And there's nothing wrong with being aggressive and motivated in a right way. But poor in spirit is a recognition of your inability to make spiritual things work for you without God. I can do nothing without the Lord, absolutely nothing. I can do things as a religionist. As members of religion, we can put good minds together and think of some noble projects. We can do a lot of things and make a lot of plans and get the approval of a lot of people for our hard work and our efforts and our intentions. either building somebody something, feeding somebody something, going to a missionary field to relieve the pressure. Just a lot of things that we can just think of to do. I don't think we're wrong when we want to help people either. But the mission of the church, primarily, before anything else is done, is to preach the word. But that seems to be such a tedious thing. To come together, well, twice a week, some places don't do much teaching, but at least they're meeting, they come together, I hope we do, I hope we teach, but we come together a couple times a week, and we try to explain and teach what the Bible says so that you can get some light, deal with it, and let it affect your life. Preach the word, in season or out of season. Martha, Martha said, you're encumbered about so many things in Luke 10, he said, but Mary has chosen that which cannot be taken from her. She's chosen the good thing. What did Mary choose? To listen to the word of God. There's no flash in that. There's no spectacular anything about that. You just come and you sit and you pray that God will open your mind, expand your understanding, and help me to see what you're saying. The prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. The man on the inside, the spiritual man. If God doesn't enlighten this, this man dies. Without something from God, I can't gain more. I have to be given more. Well, it's true. You might not want to agree, but it's true. It's grace. Grace is favor. If I don't need that grace and favor to do the right things and I don't need to turn to God to do the right things, I can just have some noble ideas and do that and see myself as doing more than the rest of y'all are doing. Then I get cocky and I'm just the opposite of what it means to be poor in spirit. Now I think I deserve what God has. Poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those people who are just destitute. I can't save myself. I can't heal myself. I can't do anything without God. I can't stay away from God's people, the church, the preaching. I can't stay at home and be all right by myself. God didn't say it that way in the Bible. That's not the way it's supposed to be, and that's not the way it's going to work. Let me show you a couple of places in the Old Testament because the idea of poor in spirit probably has its beginnings back in some statements made in the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's that secret place of El Elyon, the most high God. I dwell in this high and holy place with him also. Now stop. Now are we on the same page so far if I say God has specifically said who it is that he will dwell with? This is not too hard, is it? Thus saith the Lord, the high and lofty one who dwelleth in eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite... And humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, which means the humble spirit needs reviving. The French word viva is life. Reviva, it means to live again, live again. Now, this is not a good use of the word, but we're living right now and we're getting fed something here. How much we swallow, I don't know, but we're getting fed. We got something to think about tomorrow. We'll need more we will need more. Now, if you don't see your need for more, then this message is for you. It is anyway. But it says, with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The heart. The human heart. The focus of a human's life is his heart. The place that God dwells in a human life is called the heart. Christ dwells in your heart by faith. It's the place where you hide his word. Thy word have I hid in my heart. My heart will determine my life and the future and the destiny of my life. What's in my heart? He said that you should guard your heart with all diligence, for out of your heart proceed the issues of life that death or life is in the power of the tongue. And I mention that because out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said in Matthew 12, the mouth speaks. God brought an awful bunch of people to him. And if you can't agree with that, I'll speak for myself. And I can look back for 43 years this month, and I can look back and see how tolerant, how long-suffering... How kind and how gentle and how determined God has been to steer my life because I am incapable of going where I should be without his help. Amen. Amen. And God has seen fit to that. Like Paul said, while God, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you may know, that you may know, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of his inheritance in the saints and so forth. The very thing that inspires you and motivates you to receive that promises were made to you. He shows them to you so you'll exercise your faith for them. And you exercise your faith for promises because in this way, God is glorified in your life. We glorify God by receiving his promises. The world looks around and knows, said, wow, how'd you do that? Well, I didn't do that. God bless me. Wow, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But he does. But there are conditions, as he said here in verse 57, there are conditions. He said, I dwell with the person who has a humble spirit, which has to be revived all the time. It just has to constantly have spiritual input into its life. And they know that that's why they turn to the Lord and not to some book or some counselor or something else. These people turn to the Lord with their whole heart. And here's my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Here's my basket. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. You ever heard that song? I'm not going to sing all of it for you. It is us coming to the realization in our Christian life that I can only do whatever it is God wants me to do as God does it through me. Keep your finger in Isaiah. Turn to Luke 17, verse 10. That's a green pasture over there in the 17th chapter. And you remember the story there when they said, Lord, increase our faith in verse 5? And he said, in that last verse, he said, when you have done all the things that are commanded you, does it say command or required? When you have done all those things that are commanded you, what are you supposed to say? We are what? Well, how can I write a book on how great I am if that's true? Nothing wrong with writing a book. Just don't write about how great you are, about all your exploits, all the things that you did. And, and people look to you, and you get praise, and they want to honor you. And, wow, well, aren't you something? They don't want to talk to God. They want to talk to you. Wow. But he said, when we, any of us, if we're sent to some mission field, if we're blessed materially in some way and we give and help and we do it the right way and we get blessed by this, he said, when you have done all the things that were commanded you, then you have a personal relationship to God, he speaks to you about specific things. When you do that, and it works because it does when God gives it to you, he said, didn't you say this about yourself? You say this, that we are still unprofitable servants. But we have only done the things that were commanded us. Now, what does that do to our pious living and our earning heaven? How could you be personally pious if you read 548? Be you therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Who can do that? Nobody. How could it be? God He that started a good work will finish it. If he doesn't start it, you can't finish it. And what he begins, he finishes. And he takes the most unlikely souls to do a magnificent and marvelous transforming work. But he cautions us, he says, when you've done the things I I sent you to do, if you're a Billy Graham or you're some other great soul that you know of, Before you begin praising these people and saying all the wonderful things about them, and and they did have to sweat and go through the time and effort to do all of that, so praise God for those people. But they only did what they were anointed to do as God directed. So everybody that got saved got saved because God saved them. Well, if everybody that really got saved got saved because God saved them, then what credit do I get? I'm a hose. I'm just a hose. And what good is a hose without a spigot? Unless you go to a yard sale and somebody decorated a hose and painted it and put all kinds of pretty things on it and say, this is the prettiest hose I ever saw. And your garden says, it's ugly as sin unless you hook it up to something and water us with it. But even a hose, does a hose make water? It just carries water is all it does. That's all we do. We can't stand before God and say, I deserve heaven. Now look for what I've done. Remember the story in the Bible, and it's uh, still in Luke. Remember a man came before God one day, and he said, I thank you, Father, that I'm not like others. I go to such and such person's church, and I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. i got a wonderful personality, and I've done a lot of great things for people. People know me and who I am, and I'm pretty good stuff. Yeah, 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 I'm all right. I'm, at least I'm not like this publican. Remember that publican? That was me. That's sorry thing. But the publican came to the realization in his life of who he was and what he was. And he was a zero. He was nothing. And the publican, the Bible said, he could not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. Why? of his personal unworth before God he saw it not everybody gets to see this but he did he saw the kind of person he was before a holy and righteous God and all he wanted was to have favor with God and to be his and the Bible said he could not so much as even lift up his eyes unto heaven but he smote upon his breast and he said God have mercy on me a sinner I said that to a young boy one day on a tractor in a hot sun witnessing out in the country. Stopped the tractor. My buddy did. I just wanted to go home, but he, no, he wants me to preach. And I opened my Bible and read that to that boy. And he got to that point. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And he read that. And I said, can you say that? And a big tear came in his eyes, putting up hay. I said, do you need to be saved? And he said, I do. I said, can we pray with you right now? And he said, you can. And we did. And we took him to his father and down the hayfield and talked to them a while. Now, do we get a reward for that? I don't know about rewards. You know, God isn't going to ignore me. But if that boy got saved, God saved him. Because there's a whole bunch of them running around out there that I saved one time. They're, they're not here anymore. That's why, listen to me, and I mean this, and I'll probably be misunderstood for saying this, but let me say it, I'm quick trying to save people. I preach the word. God is in the business of saving people. I don't try to get them out of their seat and come forward. I don't try to make them and coerce them. I just preach to them and tell them what the Bible says, and I leave it up to God who is big enough to cause whoever he wants to be saved to respond to that. And how does God save people? With the preaching of the word, how can they preach except they be sent in Romans 10? And when they are sent, they carry the word, and it's through the power of the word that God saves people, not some dynamic speaker. It's the word of God. It's not any charismatic personality or some gift of really getting into people's, oh, it's not that. That's not what saves people. Those people came to the Lord, for example, because they want to see a dead loved one, my grandmother, my mother, or a brother, somebody that died. I, want, I just don't want, I want to see. Well, that's not the reason you get saved. You get saved because you're a sinner. And your sins have separated between you and God. And even when you come to the Lord, you've got to let go. You've got to give up your life because literally you've been purchased with a price. Amen. You no longer belong to you. You belong to him. Now, whether or not you surrender your life to him or not, we'll find out in how you live. But those that are going to be in his kingdom and are going to inherit his kingdom are going to begin with an attitude change about who they are and who God is. I can never see myself anyway being sufficient in and of myself to do anything spiritual. I used to think, probably thought I could, but I know now there's no such thing. I can't make anything work, I can't do anything that God is going to honor because I can't. Back in Isaiah 57, as you go back there, the word contrite again, the Hebrew word means crushed, hapless, unable. Would you keep your finger there again and go to Psalm 34 because this word is used there in Psalms 34. Interesting in verse 18 the lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart like that publican and like the prodigal son remember the prodigal son he came and he said father i am not worthy to be your son anymore i'm not worthy and what did the father say to him i know you're not i don't want you here go back to new orleans and and, no put a ring on his son he hugged that boy put a robe on him hugged that boy killed the fatted calf and they had a party but in verse 18 here psalm 34 he said the lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite crushed spirit you know what i think the lord is saying to us tonight that until we see ourselves the way we really are in his sight, unable, insufficient, that we're going to try to save ourselves and, and live good and do things, do by works, that, and we're going to try to live that way and think that we can make it. And we can't do it. Take the idea of lowliness. Is there anything in the Bible about how we relate to each other with that word? Is there ever such a thing as we humble ourselves with each other? Or is there ever such a thing as we esteem others better than ourselves? Is that still in the book? We esteem others as better than ourselves. It's me seeing me how I really am. I've accomplished nothing. Not a thing I've ever done in that old life gets any rewards. All my righteousness... or it's filthy rags. That's a bad word, too. All my righteousness. Because there is none... Righteous? not even one. Nobody is good. The only goodness that a man can know comes from the author of goodness, and that is God. And he alone can make a man's steps, and he'll say the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and God delights in his way. Why does he delight in his way? Because his steps are in response to what God says. And he recognizes he can do nothing else that is right, The only right thing I can do is what God shows me to do. The only right way I can go is the way that he shows me to go. If you go to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, look at this word lowly. Proverbs 3 and verse 34. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto whom? Let me ask you a question. I don't know how theologically minded you are about this, but I hope you are somewhat. What can you do as a Christian without grace? And who in this room has a right to or is entitled to grace? It is given because God alone can give it. And that's the way it works. I can't say that God has to give me anything he has. He doesn't have to. It's like God doesn't have to save anybody if he doesn't want to. Whose idea was it to save the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt, a nation within a nation? Whose idea was it for God to save them? They were all dumber than a coal bucket. They were stiff-necked, hard-headed, no learning, no nothing, just a bunch of slaves with bad attitudes. Because that happens. And he brought them out of that country And he did mighty signs and wonders. What if another country sat around another country close by and said, well, that's not fair. We try harder than they do. We're better off than they are. That's not fair for you to bless them and not bless us. Is it fair? Who's entitled to anything? Grace comes from the mind of God to those whom he sends it to. And with mercy, he relieves the suffering of those who need it but it comes through grace. Grace is an absolutely marvelous, marvelous thought, marvelous subject to study. For by grace, through faith are you saved. How else can you be saved? What other way can you be saved? Take for example, let's look at the new birth for just a moment. How are you born again? Jesus said in John chapter 3 that unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom. So I not only have to be born again. Now, you have to say that. You have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. He used the word God there. Amen? And if he adds to that, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be poor in spirit, and you have to endure persecution without fighting back. Whoa, that'd be tough. Well, you want to do it or not? Amen? How do you get born again? Do you do like I thought I would when I was in a Christian church 100 years ago? I was a young man having all kinds of wicked fun, thought it was anyway, and I thought, you know, I go to church every week because I have to. My mother makes me go and not much to it, so it's just no big deal. Nothing going on Sunday morning anyway. So, uh, yeah, I'll go. But I used to think, you know, one day when I'm about 80, man, that's not far away anymore, but one day when when I'm about 80, I think I'll go forward and get saved. Now, can you do that? Wait a minute now, wait a minute, time out. Now, before you say no, are you telling me that you can't just get saved when you want to? Watch out now. You're on the right track you telling me that you cannot just one day get saved? Well, I think I'm going to go forward and get saved today. Well, then how do you do it? Doesn't it take grace? What does grace do? From God's side, what does he do to bring your salvation forth or your new birth? Well, let me see. Second Corinthians 7, he said, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Now, what is sorrow? Anguish something you see you haven't seen before something you realize you've never realized before an awareness of yourself like you've never seen it before i'm going to hell i'm going to perish well i was in college when the real force of that hit me and i, I was oh god i'm dying i thought i was dying on a basketball scholarship with a bad lung, coughing up blood, and I'm, oh, I'm dying, I'm dying. And the way it godly sorrow works is one day God, for me it was June 30th, you've heard that, it's 1968, sitting in a church real convicted about sin, I've seen ordinary people witness and testify, not preachers, not deacons, just ordinary people, housewives, school teachers, talk about Jesus. And I'm sitting there watching these people knowing that they have something I've never had. And I know they're right. And I know I really want that, but I don't think I could ever get that. I can't have that and I'm crying. I got weepy eyes. The next morning, June 30th, 1968, just as I am without one plea. I'm wrestling. Boy, I am fighting because what plea do I have? What plea can I make? What plea can I make to God that he will accept and say, okay, I'll save you because of that. I didn't have one. The justice of God looked down at my wicked heart and said, you deserve death. You're all like an unclean thing. Hell was made for people like that. Oh, God. And then, you know, just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, and there goes Bonnie. And then it wasn't long until I was right behind her. i have been following her my whole life. But <laughs> right down the aisle. And I remember as I was coming to that place where I was going to kneel in front of the church, I began to weep. I mean, it's like... I could see my life, I was 28 years old, and I could see all the wickedness. You know, people talk about in accidents how things slow down and, or things just go by in a flash, but you can remember it all. I heard all the bad words and all the jokes and stories and vile things. I was aware that I had the sentence of death on me, and I began to weep. Now let me ask you a question, why did I even care? I didn't do that last week. I didn't do it the year before. Why am I broken hearted now? Because God had a day that he wanted to save me. This is the way he does it. It has pleased God through the preaching of the word. Somebody said something and I wanted it. The offer was made. If you'll take the first step, I'll never forget those words. You'll take the first step, God will be with you all the rest of your life. And he has been. And I knelt right there. Right behind Bob Morgan, right behind him. I wondered, what in the world is he doing here? Because I thought he was a saint. But it was godly sorrow. The keen, acute awareness of my sinful state and unworthiness before God. I had nothing to offer him, not one plea. All I could appeal to was his love and his grace. I couldn't see him, I couldn't hear him, I couldn't touch God. All I could do was listen to what somebody said that they said was in his word and on the basis of that, I went up. I asked God to save me. I've been saved now for 43 years this month. I've never looked back. I could have never gotten there on that day if God hadn't have done the work that he did because a whole lot of people went forward because they were sorry for their sins. They didn't give them up. They were just sorry they did it. They felt bad at that moment, like a drunk with a hangover. He swears to God he'll never do it again while he's hugging that commode. But when his hangover's gone and he feels better in the evening, he forgets all of that. That's the kind of repentance which is sorrow of mind. But the true thing, what God brings is what he brought to the prodigal, is a broken heart. It's like the song, I need thee, oh, I need thee. This is poverty in the spirit. I need thee every hour, I need thee. And if you don't bless me, God, I cannot be blessed. If you don't bless my marriage, it will not honor you. If you don't bless the words that I'm doing, nothing will ever transpire. I've said to God many times in my life, these are not my people, they're your people. This is not my work. It's your work. You gave me a portion of it. I'm going to do the best I can, the best way I know how, and limit nothing and leave nothing out. And If they all walk out, then I can quit doing it. And they say, I have to keep doing it. Are you still in Proverbs? Turn over to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 19. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud, the great ones, the important people, the admired, recognized, and known people. You know what he said here? It'd be better for you to become a nobody. Just disappear from everybody's worldly admirations. When I first got saved, a lot of kids got saved. A lot of young people are school, a whole bunch of them came to the Lord, they said. And we used to meet at school in the library every day, half hour before school started. And these kids appeared to be getting really turned on to the Lord. They witnessed, they testified. We ran out of time sometimes because they wanted to share what the Lord was doing. I mean, there's 50 kids in this room. And a school as small as ours was. They were really getting turned on. And one day, one of them told me that their mother said, or a sister, a family member told one of these girls. You know, one of the pretty ones, a cheerleader type and all of that stuff. Said, honey, you're wasting your life on religion. You got so much to live for and you're giving it all up to be like that you'll never be anybody you see and that's a choice that girl has to make god allows that kind of talk to go and she's got a choice to make are your eyes open do you see what you got do you see what god gave you is it genuine and stay with it are you afraid of what's going to cost you to live this way? You're afraid you'll fall away? You're afraid you'll backslide? You're afraid you'll mess up? You're afraid you'll want to go to these parties? And they did in the summer. When the shorts came out, they went, most of them were gone. They couldn't give it up. They were sorry during school for their sins, but they were glad it was spring. And school was out. See, there's some people who just can't get over the fact that what God saved when he saved me was absolute nobody. You know what Paul said about himself? He said, I'm a chief of sinners. Remember that? I'm the least of all the saints. I am the least, he said a third time, I am the least of the apostles. I didn't deserve anything I got, and God did something that, boy, he turned my life around and praised God, here I am, and lived that way the rest of his life. Never looked back. Never turned back. You got to see that look at Isaiah 66. Turn to Isaiah 66 in verse 2, and then I want you to turn over to John 15, and we'll commence closing. Isaiah 66, the last chapter, and verse 2. For all these things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man in Shelbyville, wherever he is, or out there in the, well, around the world, wherever all you are, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. It doesn't mean him that's broken doesn't have clothes on his back. Listen, folks, being poor doesn't make you spiritual. Poor people don't necessarily grasp the goodness of God because they're poor. A poor man can whine and cry and complain as much as a rich man. So it's a spiritual thing we're talking about here. This is the man I will look to even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembleth at my word. That's in the reach of every one of us here tonight. All of us. If you go to John 15 and verse 3. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. Notice as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine no more can you except you abide in me I am the vine you are the branches He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit Notice these last words for without me was it say You can do nothing Let me ask you this what can you do without Christ You can preach sermons Trust me. You can preach sermons. You can be a deacon, an elder. You can be an officer in the church. You can build a building. You can have meetings. You can have big church. You can do a lot of things that simply appeal to the passions and the goodness of people. How many Hollywood actors have learned a role in some religious movie and acted that role, and they were pretty good preachers? It's not in their heart. It's a show pretty good idea but jesus said without me while you do a lot of things you'll do nothing that is approved of god and will be a blessing unless it's prompted and inspired by me because when you've done everything i've told you to do remember this you're still an unprofitable servant now there are rewards in heaven don't get me wrong there are rewards your labor is the bible says is not in vain Your response to God doesn't go unnoticed. He's on our side. But when it comes to us wanting to take credit or boasting or being proud or lofty or cocky as opposed to being contrite and humble and living in recognition of who it is that makes things work for me, he wants you to be humble. He wants you to be a contrite soul. The opposite of poor in spirit is Revelation 3 and verse 17. The Laodicean church said two things in the Laodicean church, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, I am rich and increased with goods. And he goes on to say, and I have need of nothing. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, You don't even realize that while you are really patting yourself on the back about how well you do and how smooth your whatever it is or how whatever, you, whatever accomplishments you think you have done, any time you say, I have need of nothing because I can do this on my own, you're going to fall. I've had people through the years, many times somebody wanted me to do something. I said, well, I have to finish preparing the meal You've been preaching long enough. You don't need to do that. Now, I've heard a lot of those sermons. I preach a few of them too. You just think that, well, I've done this for so many years, there's really not much to it. I can put three or four verses together and make a pretty good point with it. See, when you start thinking like that, what happens? You quit drawing nigh to God. You don't seek and you don't study. I teach this series every ten years. It's that important. And you get to the place say, well, I've already taught that. I don't need to study that, then you're missing. Because there'll be no anointing on it. You'll speak like everybody else speaks. There won't be anything there. Nothing is stirred. And yet if things are stirred, people respond and lives are changed. Guess who did it? The Lord did it. He wants to use you too. Not so you can show other people that you know how to do this. That's the wrong reason. You want the Lord to use you. You find out what he wants you to do. You equip yourself You study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed. I don't know the Bible, learn it. That's the best equipment you got. And then whenever you're out there somewhere, somebody asks you a reason of the hope that is within you, you share the word with them. That's what God uses to save people, not your personality. He uses the word. That's why you humble yourself to the word. Your declaration is the Bible says. Jesus said it is written. I'm counting on that. Because that's all I've got. God watches over nothing else to perform it. Zero. Remember what he said to Martha? Only one thing is necessary. And that's hearing the word of God. So, if you will go back now to Matthew chapter 5. Realize that... If you are haughty, if you are self-assertive, self-serving, self-sufficient, if this is your demeanor or your disposition, if this is the way you are disposed, if this is the way you are, the way you act, the way you conduct your affairs around other people, if you present yourself as somebody that's above, then you're somewhat like a Pharisee. Remember that? In Matthew 23, woe unto you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're saying the right things, but you're living the wrong way. On the inside where the man is, you're dirt. And he didn't give him any hope. You know that? Didn't give him any hope. Now, there's some of them got saved, Nicodemus did, but I'm just saying that a man who's proud of his religious accomplishments, who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to, is not poor in spirit. To say it again, poor in spirit, doesn't mean to come out here and say, I'm just a poor. Oh, I'm sure. Would you open your Bibles tonight? <laughs> no, God didn't make me like that either. But I recognize, and I hope you do too that apart from him we're nothing we are absolutely nothing we can do things jesus said in matthew 7 not everybody that says and be lord lord shall enter into the kingdom but he that doeth the will of my father for many will say unto me in that day in that day that day that's coming it's not far away now it's coming Many, Jesus said, a lot of people are going to say in that day, but Lord, we witnessed in the streets. We led a lot of people to the Lord. But Lord, we prophesied to bunches of people. But Lord, we worked miracles. We had dynamic ministries. We touched the whole world with our ministry. You know what he said? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, a word which I relate to self-sufficiency, self-serving. Selfishness, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Is that hard or is it true? See, that doesn't have to happen with us. Doesn't have to happen with us. Are you poor in spirit? Bow your head with me then. Heavenly Father, we are tonight grateful and thankful. A privilege that you've given us of coming here in this place to meet together. And we thank you that in this lowly place we're in, you have met us here. And you have fellowship with us here. And we have been blessed since we've been here. My prayer, Lord, is that we, before the end comes, would get our eyes completely off of things, the world, and totally upon Jesus looking into the mirror of his word and seeing not only what he shows us, but what we see in ourselves and getting rid of it. I ask you to bless everybody that's here tonight. Bless those who are watching this from some other place. Let nobody's heart not be pricked and touched. Affect us all with righteousness, a desire to do what is right and just to have a humble heart before you. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name, amen, amen.